Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Mark Maslin to the podcast. Mark is a leading scientist with particular expertise in past global and regional climatic change, and he's published over 160 papers in journals such as Science, Nature and The Lancet. Mark's Professor of Climatology at University College London and a Royal Society Industrial Fellowship. He is Science Advisor of the Global Cool Foundation and Executive Director of Resitec Limited, a provider of geospatial data analytics. So thank you very much, Mark, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. So, Mark, uh, I, I've been recently reading The Human Planet and I've been following your work online. But can you just maybe just set the scene a little bit for listeners and tell us a little bit about your background and uh, yeah, what, what you do? So I study how the climate changes both in the past, the present and the future. And currently I'm fascinated about human history and how our impact on the natural world has evolved in a large over time. And so I'm looking at early hunter-gatherers who wiped out the megafauna whenever they actually turned up uh, to a new island or a new continent, all the way through to our complex industrial society that's starting to warm up the world due to global warming at an unprecedented rate. Right. So you're sleeping well at the moment. <laughs> Not. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I have a lovely family, so I try to be optimistic, but um, the amount of impact humans are having on the planet is indescribable in many ways. And I think many people don't realize the scale of it. Yes. So you're, you're, you're a lot on your mind at the moment. Now, how, how would you uh, parse it? Or, I mean, you know, when you look at some of the statistics and when you start to dig into it and, and follow some of the specialist um, uh, uh, magazines, uh, online resources and so forth, uh, and even increasingly in the mainstream media, it's it's staggering. Um, you don't know where to look, really, in terms of deforestation, in terms of biodiversity loss, in terms of uh, you know, Arctic ice, in terms of global warming, microplastics, uh, carbon uh, dioxide emissions. Are there a few, I guess, how, how would you synthesize that? And, and are there, I mean, are a few key uh, things that you, you focus on to try and, I guess, as you say, highlight exactly how bad things are? I think sometimes what I do is I try to pick out just some key facts that have that sort of wow factor that make people sit up and realize how big our footprint is on the planet. So one of them that I always talk about is the amount of concrete we produce. Now, concrete is essential for almost any building work uh, around the world. So we've produced enough concrete to cover the whole earth, including the oceans, in a layer two millimeters thick. Add to that, we have enough plastics in the world to clean film the whole of the planet as well. And if we then add to that the number of trees we've cut down, so we've cut down half the trees on the planet, and that's about three trillion of them. So if you start adding these numbers together, it starts giving you a, a feeling of the scale of the human impact. Yes, I mean, because this is an important question, really. 
because as you say these these um these are wow uh statistics and they're they're stunning and and in a way um i think somebody come up with an idea calls it a hyper object or something but they're kind of beyond our ken in some sense you know how do you you know take on board the scale of these you know you you say to cling film the the, the planet to you know to cover it in in, in concrete and, and things like that there they are pretty extraordinary and and i guess it taps into this question as to um how well you know the the science community and 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 the extended you know community around that the media are doing at at at, at getting the the message across at communicating just how, how how big an impact we're having well i don't think we're doing a very good job at communicating that at the moment and i think it's because many scientists work in a small field they get very specialized they get very niche and whether it happens to be climate change biodiversity microplastics and what happens is they are so focused on that that they miss the bigger picture i think it's only over the last say 10 years that we're picking up the big picture we're looking at the idea that we're now entering the anthropocene the geological age of humans and therefore we're putting it all together and i think the interesting thing is that we're going to change the way we think so humans are sort of limited because each individual can cope with about 150 people that we know very, very well, and we know how they're going to react to a situation. There's about 1,500 people that we can recognize and we can put a name to a face. What we haven't got now is a way of thinking as a species. And I think that's the new jump that's going to happen with all the wonderful technology, with the internet, of all things. Suddenly, we're going to be jumping from those scales up to thinking as a species and how we organize the planet as a species using those resources. Yes, yes, big, big, uh, big, big topic there, and I'd like to come back to that in 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 a moment. Um, you 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 mentioned the A word, the Anthropocene. Um, we're, we're into, I guess, a tale of geological eras, periods, epochs. Um, why can you just? Uh, I, I, I've talked about this in the podcast several times, but I'd be interested in just if you just uh, talk about what 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 the Anthropocene means. And um, I know it's it's a heated discussion taking place right now. Uh, the panel recognizing, you know, the, this new epoch and presenting it, and, the, and, and talking about the atomic age to uh, to you know to look at this current geological time unit, I guess. Um, so, what, what, why does it matter? I mean, until very recently, I, I'd say most people wouldn't be able to talk about and and and, and give you any sense of where we are in different epochs, periods, eras, ge- yeah, geological time frames so I think the most important thing about the Anthropocene is is a declaration by scientists that the human impact is such that we can now classify ourselves as a geological superpower we're having the same effect on the planet as a meteorite impact or plate tectonics and so it gives us a label for the scaling up of our impact on the planet And I think the key thing there is that up to now, we all feel rather insignificant. And science hasn't really helped. 
So for the last 500 years of science, of course, it all started with Galileo basically saying, I'm sorry, the Earth is not the center of this sort of universe. Actually, the sun is the center of the solar system. And we then have Brian Cox now staring out at space, telling us that our star is rather dull and actually one of 10 to the 24 stars in our universe and their multi-universes. And so that makes us feel really small and insignificant. The biologist, not to be outdone, there comes Charles Darwin saying, yeah, you know that special place, you know, sort of like plants, animals, man, and it was man in Victorian times, angels and God. Yeah, no, sorry, guys, guess what? You're just a smart chimpanzee who's lost his tail, you know. And so therefore, we all feel insignificant. The science made us feel really insignificant until you realize that at the moment, we influence the environment and the evolutionary destiny of most organisms on the earth. So we suddenly become the most important thing on earth as a species. And so humanity goes from being insignificant to be really important. Because let's remember, earth is the only place in the universe that we know that life exists. And suddenly we as a species are the custodians of that. Yes, um, timely in the sense that it, it, it coincides with um, a, a message and an awareness that we have created a terrible mess and a mess that's not easy to clear up and a mess that potentially, you know, will destroy us. So at the same time, we become aware of this, you know, uh, this power we've, we have in a sense, power or, or impact we have. And it comes with some other very uh, worrying and, and indeed terrifying messages. I think it's clear that our knowledge has come about just in time for us to actually then decide what to do about it. And I think that's an important thing is having knowledge, we cannot now stick our heads back in the sand and say, no, 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 nothing's going on, nothing's happening here. And that's why many of us get very cross with climate change deniers or people that deny that we're having this sort of impact on the planet because it's up to the people to decide what they want to do about it, but you can't put knowledge back into Pandora's box. You can't say, I'm sorry, we, we didn't see that. No, 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 nothing's happening here. Let's move on. Yes, I mean, not to... to um take the side or not to take the side but to, to try and uh, lean too too far to to understand the climate denial uh, side of things but there are, as you said scientists and the way they communicate is uh, the, the science community they talk a lot about probabilities which you know most people don't really get and find difficult to understand and talk about it um, I mean I did see a, a, an interview with Theodore Rozak um, back in the year 2000 and you know and he was Talking about these these questions is in a similar tone to you know uh, people today, the leading thinkers saying you know this is uh, we're at a, an extreme state, things have got very bad, we need to do something about it. But I guess it's um, I'm interested. In, on the one hand, we talk about the power of ideas, and I am interested in talking coming back to this, talking about you know the impact of an idea, the impact of 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 resituating ourselves within the cosmos or within the planet, um, but also 
I guess the, the the actual physical impact, seeing the physical impact, and it seems to me that uh, really in the last year there's been a lot of a mo- momentum. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been in the US. It's always been uh, it's only been very polarized, but it does seem now that the climate excesses, the the weather, the the, the whatever the global weirding, however you call it, these extremes are starting to impact people's uh, awareness and openness to 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 you know to, to the to the to the reality of what's going on and there does seem to be considerable momentum and i guess you know most recently in the uk and uh, with with extinction rebellion also but also greta thunberg the, uh, can you talk a little bit about how, how how you see the the lay of the land and it changing there a little bit so the ground politics i would say has markedly changed the interesting thing is it feels a little bit like it did in 2007 in the uk so there's this groundswell of sort of like concern about climate change it then impacted on the uk government tony blair then decided this was great he was given permission to act he then puts in an act of parliament called the climate change act that stated we must reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. And that's a law for all governments to follow. And the interesting thing was then at David Cameron trying to make the Conservative Party more green and more friendly looking also supported it. So it had cross-party support. The problem is that then died a death, um, the whole of that movement, because of the global crash and the idea that the whole uh, economic system was at threat. Here, what's different is we have this groundswell, but what is amazing is most of the energy is coming from young people. We're having school children going on strike and saying, this is our world, you are mucking it up, why are you not acting? And they can see that there are so many win-wins that people can do and governments can put in that they just don't get it why people aren't changing and it's that wonderful child view of a teenager going i'm sorry if that's good that's bad why are we not doing the good it doesn't have the complexity of oh you know it's a bit more difficult than that and i think that's really refreshing and has injected a huge amount of energy both into the politics Extinction Rebellion and all the other things that uh, are going on at this moment in time. Yes, um, there was a brilliant uh, uh, video online of was it I think uh, Diane Feinstein in America with the children presenting, talking to her about the you know the about climate change and her trying to kind of say, well, you, you don't realize the way things work, kids. You know, <laughs> uh, kind of uh, really uh, staggering. Uh, uh, I guess. Uh, meeting of 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 those very different perspectives um the the older and and the younger and i'm um i want to maybe uh talk a little bit about that but i just come back to this question and and looking at the anthropocene and um again um well the anthropocene i i, I know there are competitors that the underlying idea of the you know the the impact uh of humans on 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 the earth 
but there are competing, uh, competing, I guess, time frames, but also competing names for this way of what you call it. And uh, I'm interested, does that matter? The Anthropocene, uh, the, the capitalist scene, the, the fossil fuel scene, the Pluto scene, you know, different ways, I, I guess, of parsing that. And, and, and what, what do you think of the, the relative um, uh, benefits or advantage of calling it the Anthropocene compared to, for example, the uh, capitalist scene? And I guess this takes into account the, the, the question of uh, when it started and I suppose, therefore, you know, what we need, what are the levers we have to try and do something about this? So the way I separate it out is there is a discussion about the geological epoch that we are in and whether we are in the Anthropocene epoch or whether we're still in the Holocene. And I think that's really important. So this is a geological scientific definition of when human impact has become so large that we have moved into a different geological epoch. And that debate is important, and it's also important when it started. However, the other names, so there are things like the Plantationocene, the Capitocene, I've even uh, in a talk given uh, a talk including the Cthulhuocene, those are political and social science labels which try to ascribe causation. They look at and say, well, the reason we have such impact is because of this and this uh, cause, which I think are completely valid names, but they are naming something different. Whereas the Anthropocene Epoch is actually going to be, hopefully, a scientific definition And the key thing about that is it can then be fixed in stone and we can then argue about it endlessly, but it means it is a fixed point that we can all agree on. And then all those wonderful terminologies then add flavor to what is the human impact and why has it occurred. Right. I kind of would have thought that in terms of this scale of the emergency, trying to understand what the primary driver of this is, and, and therefore we talk about the you know, terminology, the naming, would, would be hugely important. Because I guess if you kind of say, well, you know, us humans, we destroy everything and we, you know, where there's these creatures that, you know, that we take over and, and, and you know, or we say, well, you know, the, we've had this huge impact and accelerating impact associated with industrial capitalism or even if you want to you know get uh, more focused you say well you know we've we've been through a particular neoliberal economic uh, uh, age call it what you will uh, series, the number of decades which has absolutely uh, transformed and and, had, and and hugely accelerated shall we say uh, our impact and presumably where you come to on, 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 on those uh, discussions, those debates, would kind of lead you to certain kinds of policies and away from other kinds of policies. Well, that's why I would say those names, those ideas are incredibly important to discuss, but actually are highly politicized. So therefore, depending on your personal politics, you will have a different view, whether it was European expansionism and the start of capitalism that was the problem, whether it uh, was the expansion of the American empire post-Second World War, whether it is neoliberalism that started in the 1980s. So depending on your politics depends on what you think is the major cause and therefore what are the major solutions. Whereas for science, the key thing is drawing a line in the sand and saying, 
this is where things started to be important and we now can define ourselves as a geological superpower. Now let's discuss, now we've got the name for it, the Anthropocene, let's discuss how, why, and what we do about it. So I think it's important to have that base definition and hopefully fixed in uh, the geological timescale so we can then say, right, we all agree now we're in the Anthropocene, what do we do about it? Yes, when you talk about a geological superpower, that doesn't give off the kind of the 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 worrying and terrifying uh, implications that when you look at what that actually means, I just wonder about whether how effective that is as a as a way of describing things. Well, when uh, maybe it's because I have a geological training. When I think of geological superpowers, I think of a meteorite impact hitting northern Mexico and wiping out the whole of the dinosaurs who ruled the planet for 120 million years. So it's that sort of scale of impact that I'm looking at. Maybe that doesn't quite translate into uh, everyday speech, but as a geologist talking about the superpower changes that occur in Earth history, they're absolutely massive. Yes. Well, one of the uh, brilliant book, and I loved it, and uh, very uh, unputdownable and uh, provocative and uh, just very rich in, in many ways. And what's clear is this isn't something that's new and it goes back in time. And as you say, there are various different um, you know, uh, causes and contributing factors um, that give rise to um, the, where we are today. Um, and uh, one of the the other uh, one of the very interesting uh, points you discuss are these question, I guess, of tipping points or uh, nonlinear change and and so forth. And um, I guess when things get where we are today, we are starting to enter into various kinds of tipping points. We're hitting various tipping points and so forth. And this is a, a big worry that we because we don't really know what they are. We don't know how 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 things accelerate within particular uh, systems and so forth. Does that kind of worry you? I think my biggest worry is the tipping point within human society itself. So in the next 20 to 25 years, the actual economic system will double in size on the planet. Now, that's more than all of the previous doublings put together. And that, for me, is the biggest tipping point. The idea of this is how much damage we've done up to now, and in the next 25 years, we can do twice as much damage. I mean, I think that, for me, is something that people haven't uh, really grasped, which is the acceleration of the global economic system and how much power and how much consumption is going to be involved in the next 20 to 25 years if we don't do something to try and limit that or put in some uh, breaks into the system. Yes. Well, I, I think that's very interesting because, um, yes, as you say, um economic growth is one of those things. I mean, it's in similar in some ways to talking about climate change, talking about a degree or 1.5 degrees. And these are things that are very difficult to really 
to understand quite the scale of what the change is. So talking about economic growth of two, two and a half percent, three percent, these are kind of things that, you know, they're bandied around the whole time, the financial media and the, in all the media. And it's, you know, this is uh, business as usual. You know, it, it's discussed. Uh, it's on the same page, uh, the front pages without uh, anybody, you know, as you say, drawing attention to the, 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 the inherent contradiction between continued growth and, and and the problems that we're, we're facing. But uh, yeah, over 25 years, 30 years, those kind of figures of uh, accumulating of 2.53%, you do get a doubling in, in the scale of the output. In, yeah. in, 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 in a sense, um, in, in one way, I guess, you know, that is something that we, we do know about, even if the message hasn't been well communicated in the sense that we know that you know and 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 and, and most economists wouldn't you know there's no no controversy there no arguments so, well yes of course you know we want to keep growing and you know to we need to grow at 2.5 or 3% to you know achieve our economic objectives and so forth it uh, so that's kind of you know uh, not, not quite written in stone but when it comes to you know the uh, arctic uh, when it comes to you know deforestation of the amazon and and things like that it seems that these are, to some extent, natural systems uh, or ecosystems that we don't fully understand at what level they need to, you know, w- w- what can happen that they, they stop functioning as an ecosystem, you know, and, 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 and start to behave uh, in, a, in a non-linear and, and, a, and erratic and, and very dangerous way. I mean, for me, the key tipping points that people have worried about is firstly the arctic and antarctic at which point has the greenland ice sheet started to melt and will just can carry on melting and the problem is that we can measure the amount of melting but we can't see whether this is the threshold which we passed i mean we know that in previous interglacials uh, when it was as warm, if not slightly warmer than today, we know that the Western Antarctic ice sheet didn't exist, and parts of Greenland were um, completely uh, ice-free. And so there are worrying indications in looking at past climate that says these ice sheets aren't always permanent. You can actually have them melting in warmer periods. And the problem is that we could have started something now that in 100 years' time we're still going... Well, we've done everything we can. We've kept the climate to one and a half degrees, but the ice sheets are still melting because we've just started them on that uh, feedback. So there are worrying things like that that we just don't know where we are on the threshold. Yes, and I suppose that comes back to this question of science communication as well, because they tend to be uh, presented in in, in probabilistic terms because the future is unknown. And therefore, you know, it, it allows people to argue and have different perspectives and say, well, we don't know. And how do we know what's going to happen anyway? And, you know, the, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, um, I guess what it highlights is just the extraordinary uh, uh, narrowing time window that we have to 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 make some change. But I also think that this is part of the climate change narrative that we need to move away from. I completely understand why climatologists like myself have for the last 30, 35 years banged on about climate change being so important. And it is important, 
But what we've done is masked all the other changes that humans are doing, such as uh, rapid deforestation, massive land use changes. We've masked that by just focusing on the climate, whereas what we need to do is look at the whole of the human impact. I mean, I'll give you one of the scariest facts for me, which is if you take the weight of all land mammals, at the moment, 30% of those mammals are humans. 67% of those mammals are our livestock and our pets. And the wildlife that David Attenborough and the others run around filming only make up 3% of all the weight of mammals on the land. I mean, that is a huge change in the land ecosystems, which we're now worrying about melting of the ice caps, but actually we've really devastated um, what should be the normal ecology on land. Yes, well, it, it's part of this, um, as you say, the, the, the recent attention, you know, that Greta Thunberg has got and has generated, which is, you know, so inspiring. But um, as you say, at the same time, you know, it's hard to get more than a certain number of messages across. And there is this, you know, all, all of these other, you know, the biodiversity question. And, and I spoke to Thomas Lovejoy on a podcast recently talking about, you know, the, the, the interrelationship between the climate change and biodiversity loss. And, um, but yes, you know, once you kind of, uh, you know, draw back and look at it from a, 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 you know, a wider perspective. And as you say, you know, so this is, this is in a way what is probably, uh, for me, you know, one of the most terrifying aspects. It is the, you know, it is industrial civilization. It is the world we live in. You know, of course, you know, that there is uh, some uh, focus on, on individual behavior. And of course, we're all individuals that part of a group you know when and our plastic bag consumption our our you know our our our, our, our flights things like that or have, have an impact but this is uh it goes beyond that as well and 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 in terms of the the scale and the speed of change we need you you, you know at the heart of this is a series of pretty tightly coupled systems you know the financial system the economic system um and uh that that are quite difficult to 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 change I think that those systems can be changed, but we need leaders that know how to change. So one of the most interesting things is that all the systems we have in place to manage the international uh, community were put in place after the Second World War. They were desk drawer plans that were drawn up by the Allies uh, during the Second World War because they had convinced themselves they were going to win eventually. And they basically took out these desk draw plans and basically set up the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the United Nations, basically to make sure that there was a system of balance and checks to ensure that countries didn't dive into recession and basically uh, then go back into a war footing. And so those systems were there because... Uh, the Allies leveraged a major crisis to change. Now, Gordon Brown and Obama had this opportunity. With the financial crash, they could have sat down with world leaders and completely changed the system, and everybody would have thanked them because we were in such dire straits, financial system crash, they could have changed it. But they didn't because they hadn't been trained to leverage crisis in such a way, so they recanted back to the standard sort of like economic models and how to actually support them. So I think what we need 
are leaders that understand how to change systems and how to do them in a positive way that also gets them re-elected. Because, of course, that's the ultimate aim. And so it's getting that win-win. How do you do something positive and get a positive response so you stay into power? Well, it's quite interesting that uh, one of the uh, uh, episodes, uh, stories in the book you talk about, which is the great stink in London, which I'd never heard of in the middle of the 18th century. <laughs> it's uh, It seems to be a good case in point for uh, a, a, a people res- responding very quickly to a uh, perceived problem and, uh, and, and, and and implementing successful policies, more successful than they could have imagined probably. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, tell the story and uh, what do you think are some of the lessons from that? Certainly. I mean, the great stink was uh, because London was growing so big and so quickly um, and all the sewage was being thrown into the streets and being washed into the Thames. So the Thames was basically the only sewer that London had. And therefore, it was basically washing through. And of course, the huge stink it caused was upsetting Parliament because it caused Parliament's by the River Thames. Now, what's really interesting about this story is that Parliament debated two options. One was to move Parliament outside of London to avoid the stink and therefore to relocate away from the problem. And the other one was to actually deal with the problem and actually do something about it. And it actually came down to uh, a very small number of votes that decided that they should get Bazalgette and the others in to actually design the first sewer system for a major city. And the Victorians were incredibly inventive and actually London still using their sewage system. But what's interesting is that there were two options on the table, which was do nothing, we'll move ourselves away. And then there's the, oh, why don't we actually use our inventiveness and actually deal with it? And I think that's where we're at the moment. We have the whole situation whereby the very rich and powerful could decide to move up the mountain to avoid anything to do with climate change and they could just ignore it or they can get stuck in and start making fundamental changes to our society to actually address our huge impact on the planet. And what's interesting, you are seeing billionaires starting to kick off. Now, admittedly, some want to go to Mars, but some are basically saying these are how electric cars should look in the future. We're putting lots of money into it. This is the future. So at the moment, I still think we're on that knife edge, whether the rich and powerful will engage and actually use the inventiveness and entrepreneurship of humanity to actually deal with the problems that we're facing, or whether they're just going to retreat up the mountain and go nothing to do with us. Yes, well, I think that's very interesting. Uh, it's a great story and it's very illuminating. And also, um, it, it brings up this question, I guess, of, of, of um, politics to some degree. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning. But, you know, we know things that we need to do. We already know, you know, the Drawdown Project. I don't know whether you're familiar with that. They've listed, you know, in great detail and analyzed, you know, the impact of refrigeration management, of education, yeah. uh, of, 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 of girls, of family planning. These things are, you know, will have huge impact. We, we, we know things we can do. We know big things we can do in terms of ecosystem restoration, things like that, uh, reforestation and so forth. It, it is a question of, uh, to some degree, of, of political will, of, 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 of social will. 
for me, it is now about developing win-win solutions. And I think that's important because politicians cannot sell policies because they're going to save the planet. They need to actually engage with their public and say, we're doing this for this, and it also saves the planet. So, for example, I've been recently interviewed a lot in London about uh, climate change. And one of the things in London is the whole debate about electric cars. And so I've turned around and said, well, hang on. Why don't we just mandate that all cars have to be electric within the next 10 years? Let's uh, make it that all Ubers and taxis within the next year have to be electric or at least hybrid because we're dealing with air pollution. We are making sure that our kids' asthma is not made worse by our diesel and petrol fumes. Oh, and by the way, we're also then saving the planet. I think it's that sort of approach whereby we're doing something very positive for the people, but at the same time, it's also saving a lot of carbon. I've also got frustrated whereby there's a huge problem in the UK, and I'm sure around the world, with energy poverty. People not being rich enough to actually have enough energy to heat their homes or to cool their homes. And therefore, what you can do is you say, okay, let's pick on those people, let's go in, let's insulate their house, let's actually put in sort of the most efficient boilers, uh, all of that, which A, saves a huge amount of carbon and therefore lowers our carbon footprint, but at the same time reduces their energy poverty at the same time. Yes, yes, great, great, great ideas. And I know you've, you, you wrote recently as well and uh, some other ideas that you've been interested in. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about, I think, the universal benefit and uh, ecosystem restoration. H- have you got two or three maybe ideas that you think are timely and uh, I don't know whether you call them low-hanging fruit, but maybe ones that we can maybe move on quickly? So um, I think that reforestation and rewilding is a very, very easy win. Um, The reason being is because lots of my colleagues talk about geoengineering and sort of like massive sort of industrial ideas of sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Hey, let's just plant trees. We've cut down three trillion of them. Therefore, we have the opportunity and the space to replant huge areas of the uh, planet. Now, the key thing is people go, oh, but there's so many people on the planet. The weird thing is that the planet is actually getting wilder because even though our population is growing massively and will peak at about 10 billion by 2050 and then may decline, those people are deciding to move and live in mega cities, which is a great opportunity because it means that the wilds are becoming wilder with lots less people in, so we can then reforest them and we can actually make those suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. Again, win-win because when you plant trees, the Chinese had a huge program uh, during the 90s and the noughties planting trees in the uh, sort of western side of the country to undo the desertification. And what they found was it stabilized the soil, it basically made the soils much deeper. And because of the transpiration, it actually made the rainfall of the region much more regular and much more predictable. So trees are a win-win. It helps the local climate as well as sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. So 
for me, that's a no-brainer. It's interesting that the international community are picking up on that. So the Bon Accord already has pledges. I think it's 420 million hectares have been pledged by countries that they're going to reforest uh, in the next few decades. Yes, very exciting. And I, I've seen um, some uh, drone technologies to plant seeds, trees and, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely uh, sequestering carbon uh, from uh, wastelands, from all kinds of lands. Um, and it's something that I uh, t- talked to Thomas Lovejoy and, and we'll be talking to people at the Yale uh, Forestry about as well. And I think it's a great, great idea. Um, you, you also talk about universal benefit. Is that something you think, uh, it, on, on one hand, it seems to be, I guess at face value is something that's more about, um, I guess, economic justice or things like that. You think it's got a, an important environmental impact as well? I do, because the key thing we have to do is break our obsession with consumption. And the way I actually talk to my students is to say, well, hang on, my parents had nowhere near the amount of stuff I have Um, but actually they weren't any happier or any more miserable than I am. And so what I'm trying to point out to them is that just having stuff doesn't make you happy. What makes you happy is your community, your peers, your engagement with people, and the ability to move on in your life and actually be successful. So having stuff is an anathema, and somehow we have to break that cycle. So the reason why universal basic income does that is because that paranoia about having to work, earn money, have stuff, because it might be taken away at any point in time, what universal basic income says is, look, whatever happens to you, when you're 18, the government will ensure that you get a basic, a very basic amount of money to make sure you can house yourself and feed yourself. And this allows you to make life choices. Because the sudden idea that your abject poverty no longer exists, you can decide, well, hang on, I'm not going to go to university now. I'm going to look after my elderly parents and make sure that they're fine and they're sorted. Or you may say, well, hang on, I'm going to try to be an entrepreneur. And I have to say, having uh, developed a business from scratch uh, about five years ago, I have no idea how people do it when they do not have an income because we haven't made a money uh, haven't made any money over five years even though we now have a turnover of about five million because we haven't taken anything out of it because it all has to go back in so if you want people to be entrepreneurs then make sure that they can have a house and some food so they can then be really uh, dynamic in the economy so Interestingly, it works on the left and the right of the political system because you don't need any welfare apart from people that have, say, disability and other problems that we need to support. It means that people can then make decisions. So if you happen to be a 40-year-old and you suddenly go, do you know what? Now it's time for me to go to university. Because you know you're supported underneath, you can do that. And the interesting thing is if you have a progressive tax system, you can actually pay for that without any problem whatsoever. 
No, a great idea, and uh, we we just need a little bit longer term thinking. It's a whole other, that's a whole other area which we could talk about um, because that's your 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 uh, main area, isn't it? Long term, long term behavior, long term geological time frames, very different from the kind of short term uh, decision making that we we seem to have uh, generated uh, in 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 business and 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 in politics today. I mean, when you talked about. Um, uh, the universal basic income. It, it, I guess it's tied in as well with what we're measuring. And if we're measuring GDP the whole time, um, you know, that's not good. Um, and it does seem that there's, again, I mean, there's, again, like you said before, there are waves uh, and, and some momentum. I think New Zealand is talking about, and, and I've seen other uh, countries talking about it as well, having uh, more multidimensional measures of uh, activity, of, of welfare, looking at, uh, you know, uh, people's welfare rather than just economic growth. So I think that that would, um, you know, the quality of life factors um which I, which I think would be important as well because you're not just measuring um, you know it's output of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think I think it's also that there are some now leading economists who are questioning the fundamentals of Western economic thinking, and they are basically showing that all our fundamental ideas of economics are basically incorrect. And actually, if you start to think about economics as part of a human society and how you actually manage it, you think about it in a very different way. And I think that's what we need to do is try to change the actual curriculum on macroeconomics to real world thinking. I mean, uh, Kate Rollworth's wonderful donut economics is brilliant, whereby she points out you have the social needs, you have the environment, and then you have the economics in between to actually make sure both are balanced. Yes, I spoke to her a few months ago. Wonderful, inspiring thinking, um, and uh, yes, uh, and, and 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 as you say, part of a growing movement of, of other economists and thinkers that are you know reevaluating re the, these questions. I mean, looking to the future, Mark, are, are you optimistic? You talked about, um, I mean, you're a family man. Um, that that it, it would colour, I guess, as well uh, how how one sees these. Uh, Things you talked about that the younger people and uh, you know the millennials, younger generation, and their the school children and their their how passionate they are. What what are some things that make you optimistic? So I'm very optimistic for two major reasons. I mean, the first reason is that I study human evolution, and one of the key things there is the flexibility of the human brain. So what we found is that when humans are born, 90% of the connections in the brain are there, not yet formed. And therefore, the actual uh, society in which a new human is born into has a huge influence on how they think. And this is why many of us feel that our children are literally a different species. I mean, these are children that are growing up in a globalized world they have touch screens, they have no problems understanding that they can connect with any human being on the planet instantaneously and get really annoyed if they can't. And so therefore, they're thinking in very different way. They're already starting to think of a species level, whereas we, and I call ourselves the dinosaur generation, are still coping with technology and starting. We are flexible enough to actually use it, but it's not naturally part of our sort of DNA. Whereas 
for the younger people, I think it is. And my other reason for being optimistic is about two weeks ago, I came home and my youngest daughter came up to me and said, I want to go on the climate strike. I went, that's fantastic. That's okay. Um, can I help? And she said, yeah, can you take me? And I went, absolutely. And the key thing is that I don't bring my work home. I mean, I have to say, the idea of coming home every day going, hi, dear, how are you? And then going, how was your day, dear? And I'm me going, well, the world's screwed. It's still screwed. And I'm not sure how to actually fix it. It just doesn't happen. So for me to have my daughter come to me and say, I'm going on the climate strike because this is really important. And actually, I wrote a blog with her for the conversation, interviewing her. And I have to say, it's more stressful than when I interviewed Al Gore actually asking her why she was going on the strike, what she was hoping to achieve. And the really interesting thing is it had nothing to do with me. It was her peers. It was her school. It was the knowledge she was absorbing from the Internet. It was all of those things that were influencing her much more than what daddy does for a job. So I think that is why I'm optimistic, is not necessarily our generation fixing things, but the generation coming behind us really is motivated and I think has a completely different way of thinking about the world, which is fantastic. Well, that's fantastic. Fantastic. What's next for you, Mark? Oh, what next for me? Um, yeah, you asked me this question and I, I had to scratch my head going, oh, what do I do now? Um, so for me, what I want to start picking apart is what solutions are there? I think I've dwelt too much of my career, so the last sort of 25 years, looking at all the problems, the science behind it. I think now, and it was started in the book, so Simon and I started in the book to look at solutions, things that could make a difference. And for me, I think that's going to be where I focus on. I had a fantastic PhD student who's just finished who was working on measuring and looking at the global green economy. And I think that there are huge changes that we can make uh, to our economy and how we think about economics and how we actually think about goods and services. And I think we can twist those so that actually they become very positive parts of society. And so that's what I'm going to hopefully focus on perhaps for the next decade or so. Well, that's important work, and uh, I wish you the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for sharing uh, your thoughts, your insights, the great work you've been doing with me today on the sustainability agenda. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.